0: Thank you for joining us. For your encouragement, we bring to you this biblical sermon from Dr. Charlie Dates. preached at the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. We hope that it leaves you refreshed and inspired. If you're ever in Chicago on a Sunday, we'd love to have you in worship with us. Join now, this message already in progress. One verse of scripture, verse 17, God give me grace. I'll pray for my physical strength, please, and my uh, spiritual energy while I preach to you today. First uh, Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 17 and ending at verse 17. This is how the Bible reads. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory for how long, church? Yes. You got to say it like you mean it. For how long? Yes. Forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This morning, uh, our last Sunday of the year, I want to tag this text, to God be the glory. Amen. You may be seated. I want to talk from the thought, to God be the glory. Hey, I feel I feel a little better already. I don't know if y'all ever get that feeling when you read the scripture, the hair on your arms stand up, you get little bumps. That's how I feel. To God be the glory. Will you breathe a word of prayer with me, please? Gracious God, our Father, I want to thank you. I don't mean to be selfish early on, but it has been a heaven of a year for me, Lord, and for my family. And I want to bless you that you have seen us to this last Sunday. You've given us this opportunity to worship you every week this year. You've kept us in our right mind. You've given us strength in our bodies to move forward. You've helped us to stand at the grave of loved ones. You have taken us through some high highs and some really low lows. You were there watching over us every night that we slept this year. Even in our losses, you guarded us so that our faith would not be snatched from us. And here you find us in this sanctuary on the last Sunday of this year, saying to you, to God be the glory. You get the glory, for you and you alone are worthy of our highest praise. Grant me now physical strength and spiritual energy that I may tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. During his reign as King of England, he actually led uh, much of what they call the Northern Sea Empire, Denmark, Norway. Fulfilling the mission of his father, King Canute, became known as Canute the Great. He was the most successful ruler of the Anglo-Saxon period. and At the height of his power, even Sweden and all of Scotland and all of the other lands came to bow at his feet. He put an end to the Viking rule of Britain and paid off a standing army. Bottom line, church, dude was amazing. His people loved him and were endeared to him, but to keep their esteem from getting too high. He commanded that they lift he and his throne and put it at the mouth, the lip of the sea. And he said to them, I know you all think I'm great, but I want to show you what greatness is like. He stretched out his hand and with all of the vigor in his body, he commanded that the tide of the water not come and touch his throne or his robe or any part of his body to wet him in that moment. And when he spoke to the rising sea, he said, you are part of my dominion and the ground that I am seated upon is mine. No one has disobeyed my command with impunity. Therefore, I order you water, not to wet the clothes of my body or my throne. But the sea carried on. It rose as usual, and without any reverence for his person, it soaked his feet and his legs. And his point became obvious to his people. He looked at them and said, All the inhabitants of the world should know that the power of kings is vain and trivial and that none is worthy of the name king but he who commands the heavens, the earth, and the sea by his eternal laws. I want you, in case you missed it, to hear the opening declaration of verse 17. Now, to the king eternal, to all posturing potentates, to every elected official, to appointed people, those who we name, to be leaders in our own hearts and our own lives. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, bids all of them and all of you to submit your midget throne before the singular and great throne of the eternal, immortal, and invisible king. Here is the claim of these opening words. God alone reigns and rules the world. I thought, church, that we would come to the end of this boat-sinking, friend-sharing, net-breaking year to receive this benediction. You remember what a benediction is, right? It's that Latin compound word, Charlie. Bene means good, diction meaning speech. It's a good word. This verse is also a doxology. It is a good word about the greatness of God. It is a benediction, that part of our corporate experience, where we give and issue a blessing of God's word to you at the end of the service. Y'all can lead the mics alone for me. Thank you. We give at the end of a service that helps ride upon the waves of God's real promises as you go into the rest of your day. But I also thought that this word would not fit just the end of a service, but that this word would fit the end of the year, that it would remind you and I that God has the last word. Did you hear me, church? I said that God has the last word. That means that your job does not have the last word. Your doctor does not have the last word. Your financial advisor does not get the last word. The bank cannot have the last word. Your spouse, okay, you're not doing that no more. Your boo or your bae or your ex doesn't get the last word. Only the king eternal, immortal, and invisible God Gets the last word. I wish you heard what I just said. I I don't know that I got it, but I feel like taking it. I wish you heard what I just said. Because some of you can't go to bed at night because you think your life is in the hands of somebody else. You think your health is determined by a professional who's practicing medicine. You think that your future is in the hands of some other would-be power. But I stood up on this last Sunday of the last month of this 23rd year in the second millennium to say to you, none of those fully and finally has the last word. All but God who reigns supreme and who rules heaven and earth, he alone has all your life in his hands. He gets the last word. That ought to help encourage somebody today. I said that ought to help encourage you this morning that the only God The eternal, wise, immortal, and invisible God gets the last word in your life. This is a critical word, even as it comes, hallelujah, to young Timothy. Because when we get to the first epistle of Timothy, we come into what scholars call the pastoral epistles. These missives written to Timothy and to Titus, young protege, preacher, pastors in the ministry who need a word of wisdom and encouragement from an older, more mature, seasoned pastor like the Apostle Paul. Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus while he goes on to Macedonia and all hell breaks loose in the church at Ephesus. I mean, it is scandal ridden. There are debates about false teachers rising up in the life of the church. Money and materialism is threatening to take the fellowship down. Trying to figure out how do women and men relate in the local church. Is cracking the fellowship and what it means to have integrity in ministry in the society and a culture that does not regard it is a kind of vague ambiguous idea that Paul comes to clarify oh I don't know if you felt what I felt but even in that list that doesn't sound just like a checklist for 2,000 years ago that sounds like a checklist for today and the solution to all of these problems was not a church consultation committee or a church business meeting or the church looking at the best practices of the Fortune 500. No, the solution to these problems was an examination of what real biblical leadership in the life of the church looks and feels like. I know some of y'all think you do well without a pastor. I know you in here because I've seen you down through the years. But let me just say, suggest to you that God has provided then, as God provides now, the basis for leadership to say that you need a pastor in your life. I need a pastor in my life, somebody who can clarify what God is saying, model before me as best they can what God is saying, and urge the whole fellowship to continue on mission and right At the beginning, actually toward the end of the first chapter, where Paul is addressing some of these key issues in the life of the preacher, pastor at Ephesus, he pulls up to write the words that I read to you. Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible God, be all honor, glory, both forever and ever, amen. If you're wondering, as I did, while studying this passage this week. Why would Paul insert a benediction, a doxology, and it ain't the end of the letter? Why would he, in this moment, after describing the threats of the church and reflecting on his own ministry, pull up and pause for a moment with his pen to write these words of praise? Maybe it'll shout you like it shouted me. You need to think about what Paul just finished saying. Because Paul says in verse 16, he says, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ, might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who believe in him for eternal life. What Paul is saying is, Timothy, I want you to follow my example. But I need you to know something about me. I'm the chief among sinners. I was trying to ruin the church. I was arguing against everything that I'm arguing for. But God in his mercy was patient with me. And because he wanted to use me, he waited for me to see him the way he wanted me to see him. And then he lifted me up, polished me off, implanted his word in my heart and in my life and that in this season of my life I get to serve the Lord by building his church I gotta pause for a moment to celebrate the fact that God was patient with me now to the king eternal immortal invisible God be all the honor and glory y'all making me work too hard and that's okay I got time today I'll work with you today I wish that there were some people who saw that they have a reason to pause to praise God in the same way that Paul had a reason to praise God. Maybe you cannot shout over the income you made this year. Maybe you cannot shout because you didn't have to visit the doctor this year. Maybe you cannot shout because gunshots did not ring out around your house this year. Maybe you cannot shout because you didn't get down to the bottom this year. But I can give you a reason why you can praise the Lord today. Here it is. He's been patient with your behind. I mean, if you got any sense of honesty and transparency in here, God should have been through with you. He should have cut you off. He should have thrown you away. But look at you. You have made it to the last day of the year because God has been patient. I wish I had a church that like Paul could pause spontaneously and say a shout goes right there. I know. got a sermon to finish, but you got a praise to give. When you think about how faithful God has been to you all year long, surely you can raise your hands, pat your feet, open your mouth, and say now to the King, hey, eternal and mortal and invisible God. Thank you for being patient with me. I need, to, I, need to, I need to move on. Maybe this is why Andre Crouch picked up that pen. I wish I had some old saints in here now. Picked up that pen. And with Paul's song in concert, how can I say thanks? For the things you have done for me. Oh, I wish I had some people who knew what I'm talking about. Uh, things so undeserved, yet you gave to prove your love for me. Uh, the voices of a million angels i uh, cannot express my gratitude but all that i am and ever hope to be i owe it all to thee to god be the glory i, I said to god not my money, not my networks, not my friends, not the government, but to God be the glory for the things he has done. Just let me live my life and let it be pleasing, Lord, to thee. And should I gain any praise, if people should call my name. Should anybody think that there's something good about it? Let it go to Calvary. For with His blood, He has saved me. With His power, He has raised me all oh, to God. Be the glory. Listen now. I didn't lost track, and I gotta slow down. But my soul then got happy up here. I said, my soul, the immaterial part of me that you cannot see, that animates my body. My soul has gotten happy because when I think of the unique attributes of God, how they have functioned in my limited, finite self, my mind starts to go wild inside of me and I lose track of words. And the best I can say is to God. The glory. I want to show you why I'm so worked up right now. Because these are attributes that the apostle Paul uses to describe the keeping power of God. Let me let me do this if I can. So little of our preaching is sufficiently theological. I want to thank Dr. Marcus Cosby. I don't know if you're watching Dr. Cosby for for urging me, helping me to finish. My sermon, I was going to drop it, but, but he said to me, we need more God talk in our churches. Uh, so much of our preaching is about us that, that we forget when we come here, it's about him. Uh, he is all the way strong and powerful. So what do we learn about God? Well, I'm glad you asked. We learn that the unique attributes of God Uniquely qualify him to handle what's handling you. See, this text basically says, Brother Burris, that God is not limited to geography or generations. He is not confined to the spatial dynamics that block you and I in. that that God is not represented by physical objects and all that physical objects convey. We are creatures. Anthro, in the original language, flesh. And the best we can do is come up with anthropomorphic images to try to think about God. But God is a spirit church. He ain't composed of the stuff we're composed of. He does not possess a physical nature, but he does have an essential nature nonetheless. And this is important because one consequence of God's spirituality is that he doesn't have the limitations you have. And as long as you think of God as a graduated human being, the man upstairs, the less you will be able to comprehend and appreciate the largesse of his actual nature. This text gives us four unique characteristics, maybe five if I work is Sam. And it also gives us four kind of elements of this doxology that ought to move you and I to praise God until we get together later tonight to shout the new year in. Here it is. This text says that God is uniquely capable of handling the things that handle you because he's the king eternal. Oh, listen to me, friends. He's king, not elected, not appointed. It just is what it is. But this text says that he's king eternal, literally the way that the original language reads it is he's the king of the ages. Uh, I like the way it says it at the end of the text, the ages of the ages, forever and ever. Uh, the ages is a word that the Bible uses to describe the epochs, the periods of time of divine redemptive history. And, and it is to say that the best of human power is that you remain great or are on top for a age. We are so stuck in these arguments right now about who's the greatest of all time. And we know, don't we? And Michael Jordan is the greatest of all times. That's undisputed. That's undisputed. And if you don't don't know that or believe that, we will extend an invitation for faith in Christ to you at the end of the service so that he can fix your mind. However, have y'all seen Mike lately? Mike just don't look. And I love, we love you, Mike, if you're watching. We love you, bro. I really appreciate you. Every now and then we run into Mike. I don't want him to take this the wrong way. So, <laughs> but he can't stay on top forever. That, that, that's why new emerging players want to topple his record. Because the best we can do is be great for a period of time. But when Paul writes these words to the king eternal, What he's saying is there is no age that can contain his greatness. He's the greatest from age to age. Time cannot age him, and ages do not time him. All that we know about time does not at all begin to describe the beauty and the magnificence of his person. All that God is, he always has been. And all that he is, he always will be. When time falls exhausted at the feet of eternity, he will still be standing as great as he ever was. And the Bible says that God has put eternity into the hearts of men and women so that we would somehow or another have a picture of the greatness and the grandeur of God. But he's not only eternal. The text says that he's immortal. mortal. I've been fascinated listening to Charlie over the last few years talk about these Greek gods. Many of you, like I did, studied Greek civilization at some point, and you learned about Zeus and Nike and Aphrodite. She was my favorite. And all of the other uh, would-be gods of the world. And one of the things that the gods in the pantheon jockeyed for, some of them had, some of them wanted to keep, was immortality. Because even in Greek mythology, human beings are fascinated with the idea of something that does not die. But friends, can I tell you something today that you know but you're not always willing to admit? Time takes its toll on all of us. Like the fabric of a tent, worn and tattered by the wear, and waste of time, we human beings, these earthly tabernacles, they start to dissolve. Oh, friends, I wish I could tell you, those of you who think you're in the spring of life, you're coming of age, you young people, and your skin is tight and supple, and you can wake up in the middle of the night and run a marathon, you can go four days without eating, you feel like you are on top of the world, enjoy it. Enjoy it all. I mean, take all the pictures you can, stand in the mirror, admire yourself. Cause time is gonna take all that supple and let gravity Sit on top of it. And stuff that stand up firm and perky right now. Come on in here, talk to me now. It's gonna start to lag and drag. And you're gonna have to use supports to hold up what used to stand up on its own. Cause we wither. Like a temple, we fade. Like a tabernacle, we fade. It's it's just true. Hair start turning colors start feeling muscles aching that you didn't even know you had. And for no apparent reason, you wake up and one body part feels like it don't really want to cooperate with your plan for that day. Time takes its toll on all of us. And then one day, time takes its ultimate toll. And we come to the point where our fitness gives way to our weakness, where our health gives way to sickness. And though nobody wants to admit it, the day comes when you run into your mortality, where death, that kind of indisputed ruler of flesh, comes creeping at your door. That's the story of human fascination. But that's also the punch of the power of this text. Are you listening to me? It's your limitedness, your finiteness that speaks to the limitlessness of God. It is your weakness that speaks of the strength of God. It it is that time does not wear and tear God. It does not waste him away. God is immortal. The the better way even for me to talk about this is that God is incorruptible. Scholars argue that that the reason we're mortal is because of our corruption. It's because of Adam and Eve's original sin. That's what caused death to enter into the world. But, But this text, if that is the case, makes a striking claim inside of that. It says, because God is not affected by corruption, he himself is immortal. This is beautiful because the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9, when he talks about the crown we will will receive, it's this same word. We're going to get a crown that's incorruptible. When he pulls up in 1 Corinthians 15 to express the nature of the resurrection body we will receive, he uses this word we are going to have incorruptible resurrection bodies. When when he pulls up again to characterize the seed of regeneration, Peter does in 1 Peter 1, and when he describes the nature of the word of God, he describes it as the imperishable, incorruptible, immortal seed of the word. In other words, friends, the reason God can handle what's handling you is because time has never fazed God. It has never weakened his ability. It has never wasted him. But this text also says something, not just about the eternality and the immortality of God, but it gives us another reason to praise God. It is the invisibility of God. See, we got something that human power never will have. It, it is this, that there, are, there is language used to describe the person and work of God that never will describe you and I. The invisibility of God is what Paul says. He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. See, the invisibility of God speaks to the supremacy of God over all creation. In other words, church, you ain't never seen God with your eyes. Go ahead, tell the truth. Some of y'all sitting there like, "Mm, I did see God one night in a dream. He came to me walking on the water. That was indigestion, not inspiration. (laughs) You've never smelled what kind of cologne God wears. You you've never touched God with your hands. Because God is a spirit. He is invisible. The, The adjective that is used to describe God and his invisibility has shown up multiple times in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. All of creation. Of the world experiences his invisible attributes Colossians 1 15 which I'll revisit in a moment says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God Uh, Hebrews 11 the writer says by faith he left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king for he endured as seeing him who is unseen friends everywhere you look you run into the majesty and power of God's invisibility Because God is not physical, material, or bodily. He's not corporal. Man has only seen God as God has chosen to reveal himself to mankind. So you ask the question, so what? If if we are mortal and God is immortal, what does that mean? That that means that we are weak and everything we come up with is weak. Every solution we create is mortal, time-bound, and death-eligible. But but everything we know in order to see it or experience it, we think we have to be able to actually behold it with our eyes. So how do we relate to a God, Pastor Charlie, that we cannot see, touch, or hold with our hands? That's part of our challenge, isn't it, church? That, That you and I are so sensory bound. We taste, we touch, we smell, we see. But I want to submit to you that nobody comes to God by what they taste, touch, or smell that the invisible God can only be sensed by another sense. My first flight years ago was from Chicago to LA. We left Midway and at some point during this four hour flight, it started to get real dark outside. And, And see, those of you seasoned flyers cannot appreciate maybe the naivete of my early experience, I wonder, what many of us never give thought to. If I can't see, the pilot can't see. And, and so, it's, it's not like there are signs up there in the sky, turn left, stay for 300 miles to get to L.A., But just because the pilot cannot see, that does not stop the pilot from flying. You you see, the pilot is actually not looking out the window. The pilot is actually looking at some instruments. And these instruments in the cockpit tell the pilot how fast they are going, how high they are flying, the altitude and attitude of the plane. And so long as the pilot pays attention to the instruments in the cockpit, you know what I discovered? We landed right at LAX. Because even a pilot has to fly by faith, has to see what cannot be seen, has to read instruments. So you say, what instruments do I read? I ain't got time to tell you, but that's why we fasting. Because God has given you some instruments that has helped you to discern his movement, that though he is invisible, he has all power. That's a word about his power, but here's a word about his person. Little girl was in Sunday school one day, and the teacher had given them canvases and crayons and asked them to the color. Draw out your favorite scene or character in the Bible. Little girl started drawing out. Little boy was drawing, he drew Jonah and the big fish. It was clear, it was water and a great big old gray fish. Uh, another little boy w- was drawing Moses parting the Red Sea. And the the teacher walked by and said, oh, these are wonderful. This is absolutely fantastic. But a little girl was sitting off on the side, drawing lines and movements and waves. And the teacher asked her, "Uh, what are you drawing? She said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said to her, stop. Like, everybody knows that God is invisible, that he cannot be seen. Nobody knows what God looks like. And the little girl said, They will when I'm done. Because watch this, friends. All human beings can do is try to create an image of God. But I'm so glad that God did not leave it up to us to show the world what he looks like. But the invisible God became visible in the person of Jesus the Christ. So if you want to know what God looks like, all you got to do is look at Jesus. When you see Jesus turning water into wine in John chapter 2, that's God saying, this is what I look like in a crisis. I can handle whatever your problem is. When you see Jesus walking on water in Mark chapter 6, that's God saying, this is what I look like. I got power over all nature. When you see God multiplying fish and loaves of bread to feed the multitude, Jesus doing that, that's God saying, This is what I look like. I can meet all of your needs according to my riches and glory. When you see Jesus mounted up on a tree with nails in his hands and a spear in his side, that's God saying, this is what I look like. I loved you. And if you are wondering what God looks like and why you ought to praise him, it is because God has shown himself in the person of Jesus the Christ. I'm done. My soul has lifted and I'm going to see y'all tonight. But there is one word that I want to leave you with before I go. It says now to him, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That amen is a word that ought to become used in your vocabulary. Amen is the kind of word that shouldn't just be used at the end of your prayers, but you ought to think about what it means in your life. Uh, That word, amen, means reliable like a foundation. It means unmovable, unshakable. It's the word Jesus uses in the King James when he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, amen, amen, I say unto you. This is trustworthy that if you believe in what I am saying, you will be able to build your life upon it. So when we say amen, we are not simply saying that we agree with God. We are saying it is so that what we have just got through praying and singing and thinking is actually true, whether we can see it with our eyes or not. Because God is so good and his power is so great that sometimes the only thing you can say at the end of a prayer, the end of a sermon, at the end of a song, is amen. Now I got to ask y'all, because I thought you'd be feeling what I'm saying by now. If God has been faithful to you in January, if he's paid your bills or at least kept you some way through February, March, and April, if he held you up all summer long, if he saw you through thick and thin, up. And down, if he brought you through the fall and now the winter, if he has kept your crazy behind in situations seen and unseen, there ought to be one word that comes out at the end of the year. To God be the glory forever. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for another uplifting and inspiring message by Dr. Charlie Dates, senior pastor of the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. For more information about our church, visit ProgressiveChicago.org. Progress is yours through the gospel of Jesus Christ.